morning, church family. You know, around Thanksgiving, we're always just the things that we're thankful for. I'm thankful when God's people come into God's house ready to worship God. So thank you. Thankful for you, church family. Also thankful my kids are home for Thanksgiving, so my heart is full. So listen, family. I've shared a lot of personal stories in my sermons. But really, I've kept back the embarrassing ones for fear of being judged. But I feel like we're close enough now where maybe I can share one. So here goes. My senior year of high school, uh, I realized I was madly in love with a girl. And her name was Debbie. And at that time, she was one of my closest friends. And so we didn't start dating until the end of our senior year, which for any high schoolers in the audience, that is not a very good strategy. (laughs) But Debbie had given me a few of her senior year photos, and I took those with me to college. So in my dorm, we had a common room shared by all of my roommates, and I had a desk in the corner of the room. And so I decorated my desk with her pictures. So I taped a picture to the the computer. I had two pictures kind of back to back in a frame next to the computer on the desk. I had two pictures taped to the wall. (laughs) Debbie and I had gone to the mall that summer and we took one of those like couple photos that were in a big button and that was on my desk. Debbie had handwritten me a Bible verse and so that was in a frame on the desk. My, uh, my roommates affectionately called it the Debbie Shrine. <laughs> I'm already feeling a little judged by y'all right now, by the way. So one day, the twin brother of one of my roommates came for a visit. His name was Abe, and he was visiting his brother Ray. And uh, so I'm at my computer just writing a paper, and Abe sees me and says, Hi, and he sees the shrine. And so he says to his brother Ray, Who's the girl? And Ray says, oh, that's Debbie, his girlfriend. Uh, And Abe says, that's a lot of pictures. (laughs) He must really love her. And Ray responded, oh, no, he worships her. We are continuing our series, This Is Us, a series about the main things that make up the heartbeat and DNA of Lake City. Last week, we discussed what the Bible says about serving And next week, Pastor Jim is going to wrap up our series by talking about prayer. Today, we're going to talk about worship. Worship is a large topic. We could easily do a whole sermon series on just worship. But for today, in the first half, I'm going to teach on what worship is, according to the Bible. And then Pastor Mark is going to teach on why we worship through song. In the ESV translation, the word worship appears nearly 200 times in Scripture. It first appears in Genesis chapter 22 in the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. The Bible says, Then Abraham said to his young men, So stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now worship not only appears in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, it also appears in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. The Bible says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book and worship God. And in between Genesis and Revelation, worship appears in nearly every book of the Bible. Because here's the thing. Worship is a central theme of the Bible. Worship is a central theme of the Bible. From God's command in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me to the Israelites' worship of the golden calf, to the kings of the east coming to worship Jesus at his birth. 
to Satan tempting Jesus to worship him in exchange for all the riches of the world. Right? Worship is a central theme of scripture. In the Old Testament, the word worship is the Hebrew word sakah, which means to bow down in reverence or respect. In fact, in many of the Old Testament verses that use the word worship, the physical act of either bowing down or bowing your head is, is also mentioned. In the New Testament, the word worship is a Greek word, proskuneo, which means to prostrate oneself, to pay homage, or to express respect. But it's unclear that in both usage of the word, worship is giving to someone or something else our respect, our praise, reverence, or adoration. It's giving to someone or something our respect, praise, reverence, or adoration. More than those things, we often give the object of our worship our time, our attention, and our resources. Now notice the definition says someone or something. It doesn't say God. Because throughout the Bible, we see worship of many things beside the one true God. Right earlier, I mentioned the golden calf. God's people worshipped an inanimate object at one moment. The pagan nations around God's people, they worshipped false gods. It's quite possible to worship things other than the Jehovah God of the Bible. And that brings us to an important reality. That human beings are wired for worship. You and I are wired for worship. Our default nature as humans is to worship someone or something. You know, even people who claim not to be religious or spiritual, they worship someone or something. Now, the someone may be another religious figure. It could be a false god. In my antidote, it was my significant other. In our me-first me culture, the someone that people worship is often ourselves. There was a Gospel Coalition article last week entitled, Self-Worship is the World's Fastest Growing Religion. And if it's not someone, people can sometimes worship something. Their career, their physical appearance, their intellect, their talent, their experiences. There is no end to what people will choose to worship. Author David Foster Wallace delivered a commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and he said this. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now, Wallace is not a Christian, and he could, he could not have expressed a more true statement about the nature of worship. Everybody worships. Everybody. Whether or not they admit it or aware of it, everybody worships someone or something. It's why the first of the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Because God knows that we're wired for worship. And if we're not commanded to worship him and him alone, we will find someone or something else to worship. Our default nature is idolatry. So if every human being worships someone or something, well, what separates the follower of Jesus from all these other worshipers? It's this. Followers of Jesus, 
worship the only one worthy of our worship. The only one worthy of our worship. All the other things that are worshipped in this world, other people, power, fame, attention, celebrities, intellect, false gods, politics, all these other things that we worship don't deserve our worship. Don't deserve our respect, praise, reverence, or adoration. Don't deserve our resources, our time, our attention. Only the one true God of the Bible deserves that. Only the Jehovah God of the Bible deserves our worship. Jesus, only Jesus deserves our worship. Because he is the only one worthy of our worship. How so? So I want to anchor our thinking on worship on two passages in scripture. And the first is in the book of Romans. And so for context, Romans was written by the apostle Paul to Christians who were living in Rome. In the first 11 chapters, they lay out the important doctrines on sin and salvation. Romans is the greatest book of doctrine ever written. And by discussing sin and salvation, Romans, the Bible gives us the reason why God alone is worthy of our worship. And it's this, God is worthy of our worship because of the gospel, because of the gospel. Now, Christians use the word gospel all the time. So let me briefly explain what the gospel is. This is the gospel that a holy God created us to be in a loving relationship with him. But our sin broke that relationship. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the consequence of that sin is we've earned eternal separation and death. We've earned separation from the God who loves us. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. But God, out of a heart of great love, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to atone for our sin. And then he was raised from the dead. And after the resurrection, for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life and we restore to that right relationship with God. Romans 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the gospel. That mankind sinned. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have reconciliation with God. That's what's laid out in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And that is the basis of Christian worship. We worship God for who he is, a holy, loving God. And we worship him for what he's done. Reconciled us through his death and resurrection. Christian author and radio host Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth defined Christian worship this way. Worship is a believer's response to God's revelation of himself. It's expressing wonder, awe, and gratitude for the worthiness, the greatness, and the goodness of our Lord. It is the appropriate response to God's person, his provision, his power, his promises, and his plan. We worship God for who he is and what he's done. So Paul lays that out in the first 11 chapters. And what's the next verse beginning of chapter 12, that follows up that, right? The first 11 chapters, what God has done, who he is, chapters 12 through 16 is how do we respond to that as followers of Jesus? The Bible says this. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul immediately, after laying out the gospel, leads us to worship. 
Because the gospel leads us to worship. And Paul says what is acceptable and holy to God, what is real worship, is that we offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now that phrase, living sacrifice, would have puzzled readers and listeners of Paul's letter. Because you say a first century, to a first century Jewish person the word sacrifice, they immediately think about the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law had a bunch of instructions on how to sacrifice animals to atone for sin and to properly worship a holy God. So they hear the worship, they hear the word sacrifice, they think of that. But all the sacrifices in the Bible, they're dead sacrifices. So a living sacrifice really would have caught their attention. So what does a living sacrifice look like? Well, that's what's explained in the next verse in Romans chapter 12 too. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? Living worship that's holy and acceptable. And then verse 2, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here's what worship looks like. It's these two commands in verse 2. First part is this. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't look like the world around you. Don't think like the world around you. Don't value the same things the world around you values. Don't worship the thing the world wants you to worship. Don't do those things. And the second piece is, instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, have your entire worldview and mindset be transformed by your faith. We're to view the world through a biblical worldview and a biblical lens rather than the culture's lens. Don't be like the world. Instead, be transformed by your faith. Real Christian worship is expressed in and by the way that we live. In and by the way that we live. A living sacrifice means our lives are so completely and utterly transformed by our faith, by our understanding of the gospel, and by our devotion to Jesus Christ that we stand out from the world. The way that we live our lives displays that our first and highest priority is God. The way that we live out our lives, it's aligned to God's word. That's real Christian worship, how we live. The Bible says God's people are to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Christian worship causes us to shine in the darkness, the way that we live our lives. So that's Romans 12. Second place we want to anchor as far as our understanding of what worship is can be found in John chapter 4. So in this chapter, this chapter describes a conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well. So the context again is Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling through Samaria. Now Jewish people and Samaritans did not get along because Samaritans were considered pagans because they believed in a corrupted form of Judaism. They had taken Judaism and they'd mixed it with some pagan beliefs. And so Jesus and this Samaritan woman, they have this back and forth exchange. And in this exchange, Jesus reveals that he knew something about this woman's sin. And in revealing this woman's sin to her, she realizes, oh, you must be a prophet. And so she asked Jesus to settle this religious debate. And this is what the Bible says. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Samaritan woman believed he was a prophet. So she raised an issue that had been bugging her and been bugging all the Samaritans, really. And the question was this. Where could a person worship God? You see, Samaritans believed that you could worship God wherever an altar was constructed. Right? Their belief was derived from pagan thinking that you could just build a totem or a statue and your God lived in these totems and statues. So Samaritans believed you could worship God in Samaria because we built all these idols for them there. If you were an Orthodox Jewish person, though, what you believed was, you know, the local synagogue is where I live out my faith and where I hear about faith. But at least once a year, every Orthodox Jew had to go to Jerusalem to worship there, to offer sacrifices there, because the temple was in Jerusalem. Samaritans believed worship was in an idol, but Jewish believed worship was in the temple. Now, you can see why Samaritans had an issue with this. Because Samaritans were forbidden to go to the temple. So the Jewish position was, this is where worship is. And well, by the way, Samaritan, you're not allowed there. Hence the issue. Jesus answered this woman's question about worship by making this larger point. The true worship is not determined by location. It's determined by the attitude of the worshiper. God doesn't care where we worship. God cares how we worship. And God says, we must worship in spirit and truth, in spirit and truth. I want to examine these two words in a little bit more detail. The Greek word for spirit is the Greek word pneuma. And pneuma held a specific meaning to both ancient Greek medicine and ancient Greek philosophy. Pneuma referred to what the Greeks called the breath of life. It was the essence of a person. It was the seed of their consciousness. It was the Greeks' conception of the word soul. Soul is probably a better interpretation of this than spirit. You could also use the word heart. A few weeks ago, Pastor David taught on the Shema, which is a Jewish prayer that was recited twice a day. And the first part of the Shema goes this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now in this verse, it sounds as if Heart, soul, and might are three separate things, but in reality, no, they're together. Essentially, this prayer is saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all that is in you. This speaks to the true essence of worship in spirit. When you and I worship in spirit, we're engaging that inner self. We're engaging our deepest emotions, our deepest passions. It means we're not just going through the motions. We're worshiping with all that is in us. That's the only way to worship in spirit. Puritan preacher Stephen Charnock put it this way. Without the heart, it's not worship. It's a stage play. It's an acting part. We may be truly said to worship God, though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship him if we lack sincerity. Has to come from the spirit. 
but we also worship in truth. True worship engages not only our heart and our soul, it engages our mind. That is, true worship must be anchored in what we know to be truth. See, in John 4, Jesus' issue with the Samaritan woman was they worshipped a corrupted version of Judaism. They were not worshipping the Jehovah God of the Bible. Therefore, they were not worshipping God. It matters whether what we're worshipping is true or not. This is why during our weekend worship services, there are two parts to the service, right? There's the part that we worship in song, and there's the part where we worship in the preaching of the word of God. Because we must worship based on what we know to be true about who God is and what what he has done. And we learn those things in the word of God. Truth is contained in his word, and so we worship in truth. For the follower of Jesus, we need both these parts, spirit and truth, to authentically and truly worship God. Can't have worship without with with one and not the other. Because if you worship in spirit, right, with all that is in you, with your heart and your soul and your emotions, but you don't worship in your your mind, then at the end of the day, that is going to end up with a shallow, emotional experience that ends as soon as the feelings fade. If you worship in here with truth, with the knowledge of faith, but you don't engage the inner part of you, your passions, your emotion, you end up with this dry, passionless, legalistic experience that is joyless, dead faith. We need to worship in spirit and truth. So that's worship. That's what worship is. I haven't even mentioned singing. And yet for most people, when they hear the word worship, they think about song. Why ought we to worship in song? This time I'm going to have Pastor Mark come up and tell us why. Thank you, Pastor. They think everyone's cleared out since last time I preached, and so it's safe to have me back. I've been singing for as long as I can remember. My parents say that at the age of two, I used to sing myself to sleep by singing Amazing Grace. Some of my earliest musical memories involve me standing up on a chair at church to sing special music. And one of my favorite childhood pictures was of my sister and I both holding the end of a jump rope, you know, the handles, and we're singing into it like a duet in a microphone. I've had the privilege of singing with Steve Green and Larnell Harris, and maybe you've heard of Sonia Cord. <laughs> and somehow my voice even made it onto a VeggieTales recording. That was fun. More importantly, for the last 20 years, I've had the privilege of leading corporate worship in the local church. And I just have to tell you, I'm absolutely thrilled to serve at LC3 and lend my life and my song to an unending hallelujah. The more I think about it, I can't imagine my life without singing. I'm so grateful that God has given us this gift, not only that we might enjoy it, but that we might in turn give it back to him in our heart of worship for the Lord. Maybe you share this passion for music, or maybe you don't. Maybe you just graciously persevere through the first portion of the service until we get to the part you really came to listen to, the spoken word. I'm really throwing you off now, right? 
As Pastor has already shared, worship is so much more than music or singing. Worship is really our response of love to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. And yet there's over 400 references to singing in the Bible. Did you know there's 185 songs included in Scripture? In fact, we find over 50 direct commands to sing to God, including Psalm 47.6, which says this, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Four times in one verse, we're not only commanded to praise Him, but to do so with singing. The longest book in the Bible is not a book of the law. It's not a book of history. It's not one of the Gospels. It's a book of songs, which is Psalms. Moses, Miriam, Joshua, Deborah, David, Asaph, Solomon, Hezekiah, Habakkuk, sorry, Ezekiel, Paul, Silas, and even your favorite Jesus, they all sang. Scripture overflows with musical references all the way from the beginning of creation into the climax of Revelation. But why? Why does God command us to sing to him? What is the benefit of a singing congregation? What is accomplished through our singing that's a little bit more difficult through other means and other forms? In essence, why do we sing? I'd like to share five reasons. And I'd like to also give special thanks to Bob Coughlin, who's written extensively on the subject. I really enjoyed reading what he had to say in preparation for this. But these are from the Word of God. So listen to this. Number one, we sing to rejoice in our redemption. Psalm 96 declares this, so sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 104, 33 says this, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to God while I have my being. The psalmist expresses his delight in the Lord by singing to him, praising him for who he is and what he has done. He even says that he'll sing for the rest of his life. Singing, then, is a natural manifestation or expression of an inner heart reality. When we really think about all that God has done for us in Christ, our hearts overflow with joy, and a song breaks out. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, says this, We praise what we enjoy, because the delight is incomplete until it is expressed in praise. If we were not allowed to speak of what we value and celebrate what we love and praise what we admire, our joy would not be full. So if God loves us enough to make our joy full, he must not only give us himself, but he must also win from us the praise of our hearts. So true. We praise what we enjoy. We praise what we delight in. When our hearts are full, we can't help but proclaim it. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is worship. That is proclamation. Why do we sing? Because we've been redeemed. Number two, we sing to remember God's word. One of the key New Testament passages that speaks to corporate worship through song 
is contained within Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Please join me as we read together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Something that we struggle to retain in spoken word can more easily be remembered when we set to song. Join me if you know these words. The Almighty, the King of creation. Wow, you know the words. We didn't even need the lyrics for that. Or how about some not-so-profound words like these? Give me a break, give me a break, break me up. You know the words, right? We didn't have to put those on the screens this morning. Or how about this one? Why buy a mattress anywhere? All right, we're going to put the mattress jingle to bed, but hey, you get the idea. Give it a rest? Oh, come on, give me a break. But that's exactly what singing does. It burns words and songs into our mind, sometimes for years. It's why what we listen to matters. Your brain can store thousands of song lyrics that you can recall in just a split second. What are you filling your minds with? Are you feasting on Christ-exalting lyrics? The songs that you listen to, the songs that you absorb, they make a difference. They matter because what you sing, you put into your heart. In fact, when we're considering a new song at LC3, we'll often have several leaders looking at it to make sure that it's faithful to Scripture, that it celebrates the good news and the the gospel, and that it points us to Christ. That's part of what it means to worship Him in truth. We know Martin Luther for many reasons, but did you know that he was a primary catalyst for restoring congregational song? It was Luther who would set his theology to music so his church could remember it. In fact, some of his critics complained because they said he was causing the the people that he was preaching to to sing themselves into his doctrine. I think he did it on purpose. The songs that we sing, they teach us about who God is. They tell us of what he has done, and they celebrate biblical truth. We see this illustrated in scripture where at the end of Moses' life, God told Moses that the Israelites would soon begin worshiping other gods, that they would break their covenant that they had made with him, and when they did, he would send difficulties among them. Look at Deuteronomy 31 with me. Now write down for yourselves this song, teach it to the Israelites, and have them sing it. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, the song will testify against them, because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. How did God teach his people to remember his words? He did so by giving them a song. We sing to rejoice in our redemption. We sing to remember God's word. Number three, we sing to resemble our triune God. Look at the verse from Zephaniah three seventeen: The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Most of us have sung over our kids, haven't we? We sing songs to soothe them, to rejoice in them, to comfort them. Just a couple nights ago, I sang to my kids to embarrass them. That was fun for me. But ultimately, we sing songs to express our love to them. Could it be that God has created us in this way to teach us how he relates to us, his children? Can you imagine for a moment the king of all creation, the God of all the universe, rejoicing over you with singing? There are few things more tender, few things more gracious and more sweet. Listen, God the Father loves you so much, and he sings over you to show it. Matthew 26, 30 says that Jesus sang with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. Imagine the scene for just a moment. Here we see Jesus in his greatest trial. Under a significant amount of stress, the Bible says that he was greatly troubled. And what did our Lord do in that moment? He drew near... What was the song that they sang? Well, more than likely, it was Psalm 118. It was the last of the Passover Psalms, and let's say it together. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. What would you have done in that moment? You're facing your greatest trial. You're about to be betrayed by your own friends and followers. I think I might have isolated in that moment. But one of the most glorious discoveries of our Lord is that he called his disciples and his friends to join with him in a song. I'm sure it must have been so difficult. But our Savior shows some kind of strength. When I'm tempted to draw away, Jesus drew near to the Lord and worshiped through a song. Our Savior sings, and he invites us to join in the refrain. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Finally, we see that singing is a manifestation of a spirit-filled life. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, Paul says that one of the things that we are doing when we are filled with the Spirit is that we will be singing, making melody in our heart to the Lord. The Holy Spirit inspires the people of God to sing in their hearts. So we see the triune God has invited us to join him. And because we are made in his image, he wants us to be like him. We sing to rejoice in our redemption. We sing to remember God's word. We sing to resemble our triune God. We sing to rekindle our hearts. Let's revisit Colossians 3:17 and I want to just draw your attention to a few phrases here. It says as you sing, do so with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now throughout the Bible we see God's constant pursuit and engagement with the heart. Not only does singing help us to remember words, but it helps those to connect those words that we just sang into our hearts as well. 
I think it's important for us to remember that God has made us embodied creatures. Body, soul, mind, spirit. They're not these kind of disparate compartmentalized pieces. So what we do in the physical realm actually connects deeply to the spiritual. And singing is just the beginning of this. Whenever we see worship occurring throughout scripture, it's usually accompanied by some physical outward expression. Shouting, clapping, bowing, kneeling, raising hands, and so much more. So the reason that God invites us to sing, as well as to use our body in the worship of Jesus, is because something supernatural is happening. It's all of who we are is kind of coming together. Body, soul, mind, spirit, they're all working together to accomplish his purpose. In fact, studies show this. We see that singing raises endorphins that reduce stress, elevates joy, builds community, reduces pain, and so on and so on and so on. Now I understand, there's some of you here that get a little uncomfortable about singing. You don't feel that you sing well. You don't want to be a distraction. Perhaps you sing a little out of tune or off key. Maybe you've watched one too many auditions of American Idol. But when God invites us to sing, he's actually doing so for our own flourishing. He's actually doing so for our own good. And not only for our good, but also for his glory. Have you ever thought about the fact that when God gives us commandments, he does so for our own good. He does so for our own flourishing, our own benefit. So when God invites us to sing, it's for our good. Number five, we sing as a reflection of our unity. All right, participation time. I want to hear you out loud. What are some places that people sing together? Let me hear you. Church. Good. Where else? Where? Bars. Okay. Sure. Why not? They do. Where else? Concerts. Stadiums. Where? In the, oh, okay. I'm not going there. Cut. No. Okay. <laughs> yes, people do, people sing in the shower. Yes, okay. Okay, this is a different activity here. These are very different gatherings. But have you noticed the common thread throughout? It's this. Singing has an amazing way of bringing us together. It has an amazing way of uniting our hearts. When we sing, we're singing the same words. We're expressing the same attitudes, the same affections, the same desires. We're all focused on the same subject, the same person. We're aligned in our purpose. And I sensed this very last, this very thing last weekend as we were singing, Jesus paid it all. As the band was singing underneath, there was an overwhelming sense of unity, joy, vitality. As we lifted our voices and sang, Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life up from the dead. There is a rarely a time 
when we are more unified than when we're singing together as the body of Christ. It's something we should long for. And it's something we should anticipate and expect every time we gather together as God's people. Psalm 133, a song of ascent, says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. You know where else we see this expression of unity? We see this in the song and the worship of Revelation, or the worship from heaven, contained within Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John saw crowds from every tribe, every nation, every people, different cultures, different colors, different languages, all in one place, all for one purpose, all for one king. They were there to sing to the Lamb of God, and they were only there because he rescued them from their sin. Our worship should just look, should look like the worship from heaven. What song is your life singing today? If you know Jesus, then you've been given a song of redemption to sing. Let's sing it loud. Let's sing it fervently. Let's sing it together. Let's sing it continually. And may we always sing it for his glory. I'm going to invite Pastor Tom to come back up. Some next steps. Thank you. Pastor Mark, for that passionate reminder of why we sing. Uh, I mean, I invited Mark to preach with me, so his puns, that's on me, so my bad. So where do we go from here? Number one, I will search my heart for idols. I will search my heart for idols. You and I are wired for worship, but too often we allow our heart's attention to be drawn away from God by the things of this world. And so commit to spending some time this week in prayer and spending time assessing your heart for potential idols. Several ways to do that, to see whether there's an idol in you that you're unaware of, right? Number one, you can just examine where you spend the majority of your time, attention, and resources. Because where we put our time, attention, and resources speak to the things that we value most deeply that may be or may become idols. Ask yourself the question, what am I afraid to lose? Because the things that drive our anxiety and fear, that often is something that may be or become an idol. As we seek to worship God with all that is in us, we need to root out those things that prevent us or distract us from doing so. Second, I will attend at least one of the Christmas prayer events. So next weekend, again, Pastor Jim is going to be wrapping up our series by talking about prayer. And prayer is one of the ways that we worship a holy God. Each Christmas, we devote several days to praying for the church, for our community, and for those in our relationship circles that we want to come to know Christ. So on each of your seats were two prayer cards. And for those who haven't seen it before, let me explain what these are used for. Um, there are four lines on this, but ignore the number of lines. Put all the names of people that you want the church praying alongside you that they come to know Jesus. And however many names you put on this card, we're going to pray for at the end of this month. The reason that there are two cards are we would love for you to put names on both of these cards, the same name, and you can drop one of those as you exit the worship center in a basket that's on a table right outside of these doors. 
The second one, you take those home and you can put this on your fridge or on your, your dresser, some place that can daily remind you of these are the people that you're praying for. And then we'd also encourage you to invite the names on your circle for those that are local on this card to come to any one of our upcoming Christmas events. So yesterday, on uh, Friday on Facebook, we posted um, all of uh, this kind of sheet with all of the important dates coming up. There are also printed copies on the Welcome Center in the gathering area. But they include things like uh, today's wreath building uh, and uh, the first weekend of December is wear your Christmas sweater to church that weekend. All sorts of fun events we have planned. Um, the concert of prayer for that kicks off our four days of prayer is happening next Sunday, November 28th, after the 11 o'clock service. It'll run from about 1230 to 130. So please join us. Everyone is invited to that. Let us worship God in prayer and fellowship this season. Third, I will attend the Christmas worship night. So Pastor Mark shared why musical worship is such a unique and special way that we worship the Lord together. And so in addition to our weekend services on the 4th and 5th, we've set aside the evening of December 5th at 6 p.m. here at the church for a special night of worship. There will be some scripture reading, some Christmas carols, short devotional, and other songs. What a terrific way to kick off the month of December than with your church family worshiping together in song. So please plan attending that evening. And then lastly, I will worship through obedience. We'll worship through obedience. Earlier I noted that our worship is expressed in and by the way that we live our lives. That's what a living sacrifice is, right? And so our obedience to God's commands or direction in our life is one of the most important ways that we demonstrate worship. In fact, Jesus made the statement to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What is the Lord calling you to do right now in your life? Is he calling you to serve in a ministry you've never served in before? Is he calling you to give up some particular sin in your life? Is he calling you to ask someone for forgiveness or to grant someone forgiveness? Is he calling you just to trust him as you take some step of faith? Is he calling you to just persevere through some tough season, right? Whatever the Lord is calling you to do, worship him in your obedience to that call. One particular way that we worship the Lord in obedience is through our obedience in baptism. And I'm so excited to end our, our discussion on worship by seeing that lived out. At Lake City, we believe in what is typically referred to as believer's baptism. That is, we do not believe in infant baptism. We believe that baptism is for those who can make a conscious choice to be baptized after they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And that the Bible calls all believers to baptism. Baptism does, does not save you. It is a reflection of a, of a faith that you've already given over and you've been saved. And it is an act of worship. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to our director of middle school, Aaron, Aaron Bullock. Aaron. Yes, good morning. I am Aaron Bullock, and it is my honor and, and privilege to baptize James this morning. James, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is James McCauley. Awesome. And James, uh, have you made a decision to receive Jesus Christ as, as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. Awesome. Yes. Amen to that. That is an amazing decision. <laughs> um, would you uh, share with us that decision? Yeah. Um, so when I, when I first went to church, I used to go with my grandmother and uh, I used to walk her to church every day. And uh, I used to love being in church and just singing and praising the Lord in the way that I could. 
and then I, I had, she had died, and she had passed away, so I kind of started to fall off from Christ, and then I decided to join the army, and um, I started to uh, go to chaplains, go to stuff like that in the, in the army, and I used to talk to them, and started getting closer to Christ, and then I, I came here to Washington when I was stationed in JBLM after IT, and uh, I had a good time talking to my buddy Damien and uh, a couple other people from around the world, and uh, then he took me to this cadence, the cadence night, and these guys are more than just amazing. They have brought me a lot closer to Christ, and it was one of the best things that I, I think I could have ever done. And then a couple of weeks ago, I decided to go to the baptism class and decide to be baptized. So, Amen. Amen. So, James, do you, uh, do you understand that baptism itself is not the thing that saves you, but it's a reflection of what Jesus did on the cross for you? Yes, I, I do. Awesome. Amen. Uh, do you have a, a Bible scripture to, to share with us? Yes, I would like to share Psalms 119, 6-8 today. Um, so, it says, uh, Then I would be, not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I would praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Mm. Amen. Well, James, it is time. It is my honor and privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Bearing the likeness of his death and raised to new life. Baptism is a reminder of the gospel, and the gospel drives us to worship. Baptism is worship. The Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful, was first published in 1751. And the song's opening line is a call to God's people, O come all ye faithful. It's a call to come and behold Jesus, because when we behold him, it leads us to adoration. It leads us to worship, because worship is born out of an understanding of the worth of Jesus Christ. Pastor Vody Bacham noted this. Our worship is not a response to how Jesus makes us feel. Our worship is a response to Jesus' worth, regardless of how we feel. And Jesus has immeasurable worth. And therefore, Jesus is worthy of immeasurable worship. Let us now always, now and always, give to him the worship that he deserves and is worthy of. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you were doing during the life of James and, and Allison and Taylor, the others who were baptized this weekend. We thank you for what you were doing in your people. But most of all, we thank you for who you are. That you are a person of immeasurable worth. Thank you that you love us so much that you've reconciled us to yourself through your death and resurrection. And thank you that we can do, that, do this today and bring you our joyful worship in response. May that be our heart's cry today in Jesus' name. Amen.